Welcome to you if you're joining us on our stream, and whether if you're watching here in live, it's a joy and privilege to have you um, come this morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Shabu, I'm one of the pastors at Canterbury. This morning we come to uh, the very last few verses of the very last book of the Old Testament. And if you like stories, good stories, it's that moment when you read it and go, there's got to be more. And the wonderful thing is that there is. But I want you to know this morning that there will be a bit of a moment of confronting us and our hearts. Because there's a stark contrast that's illustrated for us in the passage that you just heard. Friends, what I want us to consider is the stark contrast between those who are God's people and those who are arrogant and evildoers. This morning, friends, what I pray we will consider is this, the wonderful beauty and truth that God who is gracious, the God who is gracious. Would you join with me in prayer? Father in heaven, would you overwhelm not only my own heart, but the hearts of those who are watching, those who are here with a grand vision of who you are. that you would light up our hearts with the power of your word. Lord Jesus, would you awaken our souls? Help us to see you today. Holy Spirit, please empower us to hear well. And Lord Jesus, I pray that it is for your glory alone, not mine. In your name, I pray these things. Amen. More than ever, you and I, when we turn on our TVs, when we turn on our social media feeds, it's as though in high definition we can see the reality of this. It feels as though the arrogant and the evildoers are getting away with lots of things in life. Maybe you've seen this or maybe you're yourself experiencing this right now in your life. Or maybe perhaps for some of us we've said it, whether intentionally out loud or in our hearts, God, it's not fair. I don't know if you ever said that. I know I have. Or maybe we've thought thought and looked at life and what's going on and we think and consider and go, God, how can you let them get away with that? See, here in Malachi, as we've been going through this book, We've got to remember, this is God's beautiful, glorious oracle, his divine revelation to his people. It's a burden. It's a word from God. Malachi, the messenger, is bringing this direct word. Uh, and this is not just a statement. This is dialogue. Uh, this is, what, as I said to you earlier, it's what's known as disputations, or I like to see it like an argument or discussion going on between God and his people. And we come to the very final one. And as per usual, God asks the question and they argue back. God says to them in verses 13 to 15, you have said harsh things against me. Actually, the language is pretty strong. It's saying really terrible, horrible things. And their response, how have we said that? Now, this is nothing new. We know as we've been exploring Malachi, this has been coming throughout Malachi, where God says, I love you. And yet they say, how have you loved us? And God wants to demand respect from them as their heavenly father. And they say, well, have we not shown you respect? 
when God commands them to be faithful in their marriage and say, well, have we not been faithful? God instructs them to pursue justice and they question and say, well, God, where is your justice? You don't seem to be doing anything about this. When God questions about them being obedient, they ask, well, why should we be obedient? Look at those who are not obedient to you. And God challenges them to be generous. They say, well, the evil people are better off, so why should we be generous to you? And this is the same thing. And now in this moment, God says very poignantly and powerfully from his heart, you have said harsh things against me. And they say, how? See, this group of people, they're serving God. They're keeping his commandments walking as he commands in all of life. And see, for them, at that moment, even though they're not doing it perfectly, it feels though it is vain, it's useless. It's like saying, God, what, what's the point of this? Why should I follow all these rules and regulations you've given us? And so they've brought this charge against God. It's a charge against him. They believe it is really vain to serve God. It's a waste of time. And what is their reasoning? There's a reasoning for this. You see that in verse 15. To them, the arrogant are blessed. The evil doers are once prospering. And it seems in our language, they're getting away with it. You're not doing anything about this God. And so they have harsh words towards him. I love the way the Bible is so real and it doesn't hide things. Friends, I think we feel that tension. Maybe it's just me. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, something niggles in our hearts where we consider or feel that, God, I thought we are your people. How come the wicked seem to be winning? Even on a personal level, maybe in your daily life, God, I've tried to be a good person. And it feels as though time after time, life is just too hard. And maybe we've listened to the current narrative that we hear often in our culture. It is what it is. Perhaps in your workplace, God, I have worked so hard. I was hoping to get that promotion. I did not get involved in any of the office politics, try to be fair in my role. And what? That person gets the promotion? Am I not your child? It's not fair. Not only that, they seem to be getting credit for my work. Perhaps you run a business. God, I have charged fairly for my services. I have kept everything above board. And yet that very company, the competitor, who actually is so dodgy, gets the deal above me. And not only that, they're bagging me out. God, am I not your people? On a very heart level. God, I have tried to teach my kids to love you and follow you. I've taken them to church. I've got them involved in kids' church, in youth group. I even have sent them to Christian school. And yet, they turn their back on me. God, it doesn't seem fair. Oh, Lord, not another diagnosis. It's relentless. It's exhausting. How can you let that person who actually hates you, you've cured them? God, it doesn't seem fair. Friends, I could go on, and maybe that 
stirs something in you. I know as I was looking at this passage, it stirred in me, and I thought, I can hear my voice among those people. It's as though God has forgotten us, who we are. And we question, we may not say it out loud, we say, but aren't we his? How can evil triumph at the moment? And not only that, we so we cry out and we question God. And this is what's going on here. They're saying, God, how can evil triumph over you? And not only that, they come back and they mock you. And God, you don't even, you should be judging them. And not only that, it seems that you're letting them escape. I don't know if you've wondered that, as I was saying, or perhaps that's what you're experiencing right now. See, this passage is very confronting, and it's deliberately there for us. Because how we deal with the very circumstances in our life determines, is based on who we see God to be. How we view our relationship with him. Now, in this first section, in verses 13 to 15, we're seeing the first group of people. For them, they see serving God as absolute vanity. It's useless. It's pointless. But for them, God is a means to an end. They just want to use him. You see that in verse 14? They say, God, what profit is there for us? We're keeping your laws as you asked us to. Those laws, those requirements... And we even, the language is pretty strong here, they say, we even mourn. It's like saying, God, you've seen us with those tears of repentance to you. We've done all these things as you expected, and nothing, nothing. Can you hear the sense that they're saying? God, we deserve the good things in our lives because we have done this for you. So you should do this for us. Friends, it's very real, and I love the way the Bible describes this. What's going on here is what we're seeing is their relationship with God is simply transactional. That is shown in their posture of God's law seems useless to them. It is an absolute waste of time. Because for them, in keeping them, there's no benefits for them. Now, you're going to remember, right, in the history of Israel, in this moment, in this passage, in the Old Testament, we've got two types of views and and thinking going on. Firstly, there are those who say, because we are God's people, we can live as we please. It doesn't matter. And we saw that in Malachi. And then there are those that it's almost like we're God's people. We're going to add all these laws. We're going to keep these laws and we're going to make sure it's so burdensome and, and we're going to do everything we can to protect ourselves in order that we get what we want from God. And you know what? Historians say it's after Malachi, the sect of the Pharisees got raised up to make sure everyone did exactly right in order to get what they want from God. So yet in both of this, what is going on is what's in front of us is relationship with God is transactional. So because we're God's people, we can live as we please. Or... Because we live in this way, because we live in this way, because we rule, follow these rules, we tick all the boxes, then God ought to bless us in order to receive that alone. And what happens is we're living in a relationship with God in order to get what we want out of God. His benefits alone. His blessings alone. 
one of my favorite rappers by the name of Chance the Rapper puts it this way, praises go up and the blessings come down. That very heart of that song is to say, I just want to use God to get the blessings, all the good stuff. Has to remember who he is, who God is to them, and who are they are to him. The God who loves them. And because of that love, they are to live and obey him because of his grace. Friends, we know this, right? I mean, perhaps it's just me. We fall into this two-way type of life. In the sense that I'm a child of God, I belong to Him, I'm in grace, so I live as I please. Then there are those to say, oh, to be truly a follower of Jesus, we make and add extra laws or signs in the hope that we get a tick of approval from God. So we endeavor the hardest thing to keep up that standard, or we turn up our nose to those who don't keep up those standards according to ours. And so we want God to bless us. And we may be even thinking, yes, yeah, I know should we were under grace, but do you know how that niggling thing when someone says, you're under grace, and someone, that niggling thing goes, but there's got to be something else. Well, perhaps we've thought this, I know I have. Lord God, I've given my talent, my gifts for you and for your people, so you should do this for me. What an arrogant thought on my part. Or perhaps we see the arrogant and those who are evil prospering and there's this moment in our very hearts, Lord, why do I even bother? Why do I even bother? And we forget the reality that God will judge the evil. The question is, on that day, who will God be gracious to? See, there are two audiences in the passage in front of us. Uh, the, the language of you are the ones who have spoken the hard words against God. Then there's this other group. Uh, the biblical language is the remnant or faithful who have feared God. You see that in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Sometimes in these kind of short little passages, I wish I was in that conversation and said, God, please give me some more details here. But that's not the point, I think, what Malachi is trying to do. What we know of this group is that they feared God. It's a biblical term to say that they revered him. They were in awe of who he is. And as they spoke to one another, Malachi wants to point this beautiful, beautiful reality who God is. Did you pick that up? The Lord paid attention and heard them. Do you know what a better way to put it is? God listened attentively to their conversation. And God took note. The visual that we're given here is you can see that God put, has a scroll or a book known as the scroll of remembrance or book of remembrance. Uh, this is using language they would have been familiar with in the ancient Near East. It's a picture, if you can have, of a king who has a scroll. And this king writes down a record of all those who are his favorites and all the good things that they have done. But here, note what God says through Malachi. 
What is this book of remembrance? Remembering what? What is God remembering? Those who feared the Lord. It's not a list of how many times they sacrificed, how many times they went to the temple, what family line they're in. No, you're seeing God's heart for his people. A people who have an awe of God will honor his name. This book is a record. It's a record of names of those who are redeemed, the ones he has been gracious to. And this is beautiful because the God, one who describes it this way, did you see how he picks it up? How does he describe them? Did you see that in the verses in front of you? They shall be mine. They are my treasured possession. The language again, we know as you've gone through the Old Testament, we saw this as God spoke of Israel as people, the unique relationship he has with them. And he's saying they're his special treasure, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And at this moment, God is declaring this faithful group are his truly chosen people. They're treasured to him. The language here, friends, it's a reminder, again, that God is not saying, I'm going to, just because you're my treasured possession doesn't mean you're not going to have any trial or suffering. What it's talking about here is because you are my treasured possession, when the judgment comes, what you will experience in fullness is my grace. Because you are my children. See, I love this. Because here is God. It's the details that God puts in here. He's listening in. The way that the language is described here is like he's sitting there and attentively taking notes. And it's pretty poignant in Malachi. You know why? Because throughout Malachi, you have people saying, seriously, God, are you paying attention to what's going on? And what we're seeing here is that God is. He's attentively listening. He does care. He's listening into every conversation. He knows what's being said, both in private and in public including those Zoom conversations that you have, you know, those chats. God's listening in. He knows. He's listening in to your conversation. He intensely listening in. Whether those who fear him will desire to honor him the most. I loved one of the things I read. It's, it, the language apparently is so strong. It's like the picture of a father who kneels down and listens to his children attentively to their every thought and desire because he cares for them. There's a quote up here by a guy called Ian McDougan in his commentary. He says, God has a special delight and compassion for those who truly belong to him. Friends, do you know this? If you belong to God, you are his treasured possession. And we know this. And even in the midst of the very challenges we might be experiencing, God is reminding us if you are his, you're his treasured possession. But we know this, right? In all of us, when things are going really well, we feel and know and believe that we are his treasured possession. When we get that rental property, when we get that contract, when we see healing the loved one, when we see a friend to come to believe in Jesus, when we get that promotion, when we get that job, 
When we ask someone out on a date and they say yes, or when you ask someone to marry you and they, she said yes, the kids slept through the night. Praise Jesus. We are his treasured possession. Friends, I'm not demeaning this, by the way. You should rejoice in those things and praise God for those things. But when, what about when life is not going well? When things are financially tough, do we believe that we're God's treasured possession? When relationships with spouses and loved ones are a strain, are we still his treasured possession? When work situation is really bad, do we believe that we're his treasured possession? And other health issues come up, are we still his treasured possession? Church can't meet as we ought to meet. Are we still his treasured possession? The various mandates and challenges going on in our culture that will impact you and I, are we still his treasured possession? Friends, I want you to know that God is attentively listening to those who are his. And these are real trials you're going through. I don't want to belittle them. But what happens is when our very circumstances become the only voice that drowns out what is true, what happens is that very circumstance shapes who we see God is in that moment and season. We need to remember that God is gracious. That if you are his, you are his treasured possession. And not only that, I love this picture of God attentively listening to you, attentively listening to you as a father, even those silent thoughts that you have and those tears that you cry, he is listening because you are his. Now God makes it clear to Malachi how this is going to be displayed in the coming day. This is a distinction. There are those who will serve him and the ones who will not serve him. Have a look again with me in chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For there will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." Now, I want to just share a fun fact for you. Why am I sharing this? Because I know how to read commentaries. That's why. Apparently, in the Hebrew text, there's no chapter 4. In the Hebrew text, there's chapter 3, and chapter 3 has 24 verses. Fun fact you can chat about over Christmas dinner. See, um, God is saying in this moment, the arrogant and the evildoers will have their day. God's judgment is coming. And the picture is uh, its very, very powerful and striking. It's like a heated up oven. We're talking about not your kitchen oven. 
We're talking about a huge oven that is so hot that if you come so close to it, you'll be burnt up straight away. It's a day of destruction. It's a day of judgment for the arrogant and the evildoers. The language here is also, it's a day of vindication. It's a day of victory for those who who are his, to those who fear his name. And that's why you have this picture of this sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves. You shall tread down the wicked and there shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act the Lord of hosts. Whenever the Bible has farming kind of language, I say, Lord, why? Not me. I have no idea about calves and leaping. But friends, what we have here is a confronting, powerful picture. This is war language. The very title of the Lord of hosts is the Lord of the heaven's armies. In other words, God is drawing a stark picture here. The picture is, if you can visualize it, it's as though the conquering king and his army are taking ground. Vindication has come. Victory has come. And you're given this picture of the son of righteousness, Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Two imageries of warmth, two imageries of fire in that you've got fire and furnace burning up, another imagery of heat, but this time it's the sun. Yesterday I had the great joy and privilege to marry a couple from our church. And as we were standing there and the warmth of the sun just was beating down, I thought in a nice way, I thought how beautiful is this? I don't know if you've experienced that, that gentle warmth of the sunrise. It speaks much to the heart. God is using imagery that's familiar to the people then, in that the sun that proclaims. When the sun rises, what is that? It's proclaiming a new beginning. The language here, though, this sun actually has a title. If you have heard the version that was read to you, or maybe in front of you, you would have seen the sun of righteousness, In reality, the better way to read it is the son of vindication. It's a picture of God's righteousness rising in a warmth of blessing and healing in its wings. All that injustice, all that wickedness, all that arrogance that they have experienced as his people, because of their trust in God, God will vindicate them. Their darkness will have the warmth of light. They will experience wholeness and peace. What they have lacked. This very appearing should stir something. It brings great joy. So much so, that's why you have that picture of a calf leaping from the stalls. It's a picture of something that's had its feet, it's excited. But now this is confronting picture of joy by crushing the ashes of those who spoke hard words against the Lord. It's a picture of God's judgment filled with his grace. God commands them then, listen, as my people, as my remnant, go back to what I've already told you. Remember those things, those statutes. I've called you to be a special possession, my people, a holy nation. Now you're asked to live in a particular way in this world. God is reminding them again, because of who they are, live in this way, because of my relationship with you, because I love you, you are my people, live this way. 
God is reminding them this. And he says, I will vindicate you. Leave it with me. And in this passage now, God has been talking about throughout the Old Testament, there's this hint. Always pointing forward. Friends, we know the Old Testament story reminds us that the sacrificial system will not fix the real issue and problem of sin and evil. And not only that, God's great plan is not just for a nation to be his treasured possession, but for a people from every tribe and every tongue to be his treasured possession. So this is what he does now. He promises the people, one will come before the great and awesome day, a day that will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. What we're seeing here is a picture of broken relationships being restored. It is peace. God says there's someone that's going to come, Elijah. Now, if you know the Old Testament, Elijah is a significant figure. In the Old Testament in particular, in this context, he's a mediator of the covenant who's convicted the people of their covenant breaking and called them now to return to God. And that's how the last book of the Bible ends. And it's a beautiful way to end. Because it's pointing to what is to come. There's this wonderful, beautiful picture that now is fulfilled in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to turn to Luke chapter 1 with me. And some of the verses will be on the screen. So, as we know in Malachi, they were priests, all right? The priests weren't doing as they were asked to do. And then, in the Gospel of Luke, we meet a priest. And this is what it says. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Do you know who this is? This is the dad of John the Baptist. The dad who's a Levi. He's a priest. Both parents are described in a way that they fear the Lord. They're living out their beliefs. They know they belong to him. They're living this out. And what we hear is, what has happened? God has heard their cries. He's attentively listening. And he answers for his purposes, for his glory. Look again with me in Luke 1, verses 13 to 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now see these words? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What we're seeing is scripture being fulfilled in front of our eyes. God's purposes and plans are being fulfilled. John the Baptist becomes the forerunner to God's answer to bring vindication. And do you remember that language again of the son of righteousness? Look again with me in Luke chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up in 67 to 79. 
And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might even serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, may be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby, see that language? The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's plan. His plan of vindication and redemption is revealed. John the Baptist would be like the prophets of old. And you read the other Gospels like Mark. He's calling the people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The day of judgment has come. The Messiah has arrived. And how does the Messiah arrive? How does this king arrive? My dear friends, the most unexpected way. God himself comes in his son. Jesus Christ comes our Saviour, he comes to save and seek that were lost. Whether if that's the most adamant rule-keeping prodigal or the most rule-breaking prodigal, Jesus would bring healing and salvation. How is he going to do this? How will he do this? Friends, the most treasured possession would we be willing to become forsaken on that cross. He would experience the fiery wrath for your wickedness and my sin. Our sinfully spoken words out loud or in our hearts, our apathy, our evil, our arrogance, our bitter hearts, our unfaithfulness to God. How? Even our various religious acts. Jesus pays the price. God does not spare his only true son, but gives him up for us. He crushed the most treasured possession in order to show us compassion, to bring salvation and forgiveness through his death, through his sacrifice. So now we can become the treasured possession of God. We're called to put our trust in Jesus Christ to our hearts become overwhelmed by this glorious treasure that is Jesus. And if you put your faith and trust in him, brothers and sisters, you are God's treasured possession. He has spared you because of Christ. Your names are written in God's book of life because of Christ, grace alone. And we also know this, the truth is Jesus is returning again. The great day of the Lord is yet to be fulfilled. And when he returns, he's not returning as some baby Jesus. But the king will return. And until then, you and I will have to face the reality that we will rest with the reality that the arrogant and the wicked seem to flourish and prosper. 
We will wrestle with our own hearts. They'll be tempted to become bitter and angry. Perhaps it may even seem like that God is being willing to be gracious to the wicked. And we struggle with a sense, God, are you doing anything? But friends, what God is inviting us to is something better. Through Jesus, as his treasured possessions, we are invited to come with all that we know. Because we know this, that on that day, because of Christ, you and I will stand before Christ and he will show compassion on us. Because we are his. There's nothing that we have done, it's all what he has done. It's all of grace. This is our gracious God. Perhaps for you and I to remember is this, for those of us who trust in Christ, maybe we need to stop worrying about how the wicked are getting away with things and grow in knowing that the Lord is in control and we are his treasured possession. And through his Holy Spirit, ask him to grow in awe of who Jesus is and what he has done. So that we live lives focused on this truth, what he has done. To have our eyes constantly focused on the truth of the coming back of the true son of righteousness, Jesus Christ. So this week, as you head into this week, can I ask you some questions to consider? I know in our day and age, we may spend a lot of time looking at the latest statistics various policies and political things that are going on. If you want to do that, can I invite you to consider something else? Maybe this time, turn off those notifications, turn off those news things. Between now and Christmas Day, spend some time in the Gospels. Refresh your heart again with what G- who Jesus is and what he's done. Through his Spirit, he will give you a better outlook. Maybe there are other things that are calling out to you to become the treasured possession. I'm saying to you, you're treasured because of this. Maybe the invitation for you and I, whoever you are, is to come back to knowing that you're already his treasured possession because of Christ and rest in that. And perhaps you are facing trial and suffering. (laughs) Jesus is attentively listening to you, my dear brother and sister. And your saviour totally understands exactly how you feel because he came in flesh. So cry out to him. In Christ, if you are his, you are his treasured possession. He's attentively listening to you and I, both our joys, our cries. And the day has not come yet. And because the day has not come yet, Brothers and sisters, there's work to be done to go and proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done, to be part of his work, to gather a people, to become his treasured possession from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, your brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, aunties, whoever they are who do not know Jesus. And you know what? This is a perfect time, particularly as you gather again with family and friends over those meals. Take that opportunity to represent Christ. Let me pray.
Oh, Lord Jesus, our great and treasured possession. We bow before your throne of grace and we know it is because of your grace alone we can. It's nothing that we have done or can do. And until that day, Lord Jesus, help us to live for you, to live as you've called us to be, as your treasured possession in this broken world, in amongst the arrogant and evil. Refresh our hearts again as we live for you. And until that day, we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.